Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hey friends, Erin here. I've got such an awesome interview for you guys today. A few episodes back, episode 64, we talked a lot about intuitive eating and it was actually a request from a listener and a request that I get often, to be honest. I think we're all looking to embrace intuitive eating. It sounds really awesome in theory, uh, but in practice it can be a bit challenging because it rubs up against most of what we've been taught about food and about our bodies. I've seen a lot of people start to promote their services as intuitive eating, and I've even had some health coaches reach out to me about coming on the show. What I felt really strongly about was that if I was going to have someone come on the show and speak to you guys about intuitive eating, I wanted them to have robust training, education, and deep experience with it all, because it's not just as simple as saying, trust yourself or trust your body. That sounds great in theory, and that sounds great in an Instagram post, but in practice, it actually just feels like throwing us to the wolves because the truth is we've been taught that we're not to be trusted. So how are we supposed to reconcile those two opposing ideas? One thing that I speak about often is that you don't just turn on intuitive eating. You actually have to engage your intuition all throughout your day, all throughout your life, not just when you step into the kitchen. It's not just a light switch you get to turn on. Body communication is something that needs to be actively practiced daily. And the funny thing is, I don't think too many people know this about me, but I started studying intuition and clairvoyance over a decade ago. It was just part of my wacky journey to where I am right now. So I infuse a lot of that work, um, a lot of the work that I've done with intuition, with intuitive eating, and also with eating disorder recovery, I infuse that stuff into my nutrition programs. And if you're looking to dip your toe into the whole wide world of intuitive eating while also applying a functional medicine, deep nutrition, whole foods approach, then consider signing up for my carb compatibility project. Even though it's a program about carbohydrates and blood sugar regulation, we talk a lot about how to infuse your day and your eating with that deep body communication with that intuition. Um, so that begins on August 5th, and it's the last one that I'll run until two, uh, 2000, geez, 2020, I guess. Yikes, that's crazy. But it will be the last one I run until 2020. So if you want in, then sign up. And I'm excited for the interview. It's exactly what I was looking for 
somebody to come onto the show that knows what she's talking about and you guys are going to get a real kick out of Dr. Jillian Murphy. So without much further ado, here is the interview. Okay, guys, we are back. Super excited that this interview is actually coming to fruition. Um, we've been playing <laughs> podcast tag for a very long time. So I have Dr. Jillian Murphy. She is a registered licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine. She completed the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine's four-year post-grad pro- program back in 2006. Or, do you live in Canada? I didn't even know. I do. That. I live in Kingston, Ontario, just outside Toronto. Oh, no kidding. Okay, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Jillian's background includes 10 years of general naturopathic practice, over 15 years of working with children in various fields. So I'm excited to get into that because that also includes intuitive eating and body image, um, which so many of us want to he- learn more about. I know that you have additional training in CBD. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not Can you CB- tell? CBT, not CBD, <laughs> as Can is blowing t- up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, it's imprinted in my mind because mm-hmm. I'm clearly reading CBT and saying right. CBD. Um, <laughs> I think that the biggest reason that that we connected and why I wanted to have you on the show is because the past eight years of your studies have really been dedicated to the psychology of eating, the relationship between weight and health, intuitive eating. We, we did a recent episode on health at every size and intuitive eating. So I really was hoping to talk to an expert about all of this. And you're currently training with Ellen Satter, who's like the the be all end all of kid feeding yeah she's a big deal yeah she's a (laughs) big deal yeah um all right so why don't you just jump on in and tell us a little bit about yourself and how your career has progressed like how did you end up where you are yeah sure so I am a naturopath a general naturopath um by by training but I have focus in on this specific area which is um disordered eating and body image issues and helping people understand the relationship, like how weight and health and the way that we behave around food is intricately linked. And I ended up doing this because of my own history. And so as with so many of us, you know, we end up working through things that we need to work through. And then in the process, you know, we learn all of these things that took, you know, it took me like 15 or 20 years to learn certain things and I can help someone learn it, you know, in six months or less than that. And so, um, that's why I ended up focusing in on this area. It's a long road, and so I'll try to keep it kind of short so we don't spend the whole hour talking about my history. But essentially, I had a, a fairly normal relationship with food as a kid. I was super athletic into sports. like I was a figure skater and a soccer player and a field hockey player. I was just very athletic. And um, diet culture, which is something I talk a lot about, was apparent to me. It was the 80s, right? And so it was very much the height of like aerobics and low-fat everything and Jane Fonda and, you know, Farrah Fawcett and and diet everything. Um, And I was aware of the fact that this culture existed all around me. And I was aware of the fact that my body didn't fit in perfectly. Like I was considered athletic or or stocky, you know, um, which is kind of even laughable when I look back on it now. I was just such an average size kid, but um, it didn't affect me too much in my early years. What happened though was that after my first year of university, I took some time off school. I was a little directionless. I went to Europe. I learned about naturopathic medicine. I always assumed I would go into traditional medicine. 
And so I got, you know, through this interest in naturopathic medicine, I got interested in food and the effects that it has on the body. And at the same time, my university soccer team that had been, you know, really incredible fell apart a little bit. And so when I came back to university, I had a new focus. I switched degree programs and I went from like a straight science into sort of like a kin science uh, stream. And I switched from soccer to cross country running. And so this, this like simultaneous running more and being a little bit more aware of food resulted in me losing some weight. And it was really, again, looking back on it now, it was quite minimal. I was a really medium sized, you know, if, if muscular woman, young woman, and I just became slight, I became more slender. And the reaction that I got for that was like overwhelming mm -hmm. in a, in a crazy, crazy way. And I even could see it then, like people stopping me in the street, like on the pathway at university to be like, oh my God, you look so much better. I am so proud of you. People stopping me in the university bar, people stopping me. Like it was just, it was like, it was everything. And all of a sudden I became like acutely aware of the fact that I was being judged based on my looks and my body and and even my health, you know, this was like way before there was a clean eating movement or functional medicine was big or any of those things, right? Like nobody knew what a trans fat was. Nobody cared about sugar. Um, <laughs> I did, but nobody else did. And so there was like, that was becoming a little bit a part of my, my identity. Um, and it, I started to become quite anxious about A, gaining the weight back because I hadn't intentionally set out to lose it. I didn't really know how it had all happened. And there was this acute anxiety that I was going to gain it back and go back to, I don't know, whatever it was before that was so terrible that I didn't really understand. And then paired with that was this, you know, it started to become targeted at food. And so there wasn't a word for it then. And so I had a really hard time getting any kind of help, but it's what we would now call orthorexia, which is like an obsession with healthy eating. And it, it bleeds into anorexia in that it becomes very restrictive because there's fewer and fewer foods that I could eat that were considered healthy. And I lost more weight and I became very thin and all kinds of problems ensued. And then I had to work my way out of it. And what was interesting about working my way out of it was I was working my way out of uh, an, an anxiety disorder focused on weight and healthy food while I was in naturopathic school. So in this process, I got into naturopathic medicine and spent my days studying this stuff, right? And so I always came at the work with a slightly different perspective because I had to, I was digging myself out of the hole, right? I, I couldn't, like I said, I sought out some medical help and struggled there. I sought out some like talk therapy help and I struggled to fit into their boxes. Um, and so I was really just digging myself out of the hole. And so I always came at using food therapeutically from a slightly different angle. I always approached weight and weight loss and health from a slightly different angle or through a different lens because of my history. Um, but I did, I definitely did not have all of the vocabulary that I have now for the work that I do. And so um, I just kind of puttered away and I, and I graduated and I worked as a naturopath and I did all kinds of diet therapy for like over a decade with people. And I kept bumping up 
against some similar issues and patterns and things that kind of like um, flagged or like were like red flags to, to me as someone who was already sensitive to certain issues around food and weight and health. Um, and then after I had my second baby, I, I, I sort of define that as a really big turning point because my body stopped um, what I call behaving, <laughs> mm-hmm. meaning that it didn't matter what I did, the weight, I just put on more weight in my second pregnancy than I did in my first. And um, there are lots of reasons for that. I think it was like stress and we were renovating and work was busy. There was all kinds of things that happened and I put on and just, I don't know, it was a different pregnancy, right? And um, it just didn't come off. And so I was doing everything in my naturopathic tool belt and toolkit that I could to help it come off. I was doing bioidentical hormones and I was having my thyroid checked out, you know, every six months or more. I was- It's gotta be the thyroid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, one of the breaking points for me was when I got thyroid results back, like, and I mean like the full panel, right? Like I wasn't just doing TSH, I was doing everything. And I was already on bioidenticals and I was on adrenal supplements and I'd fixed my sleep and deepened that and reduced stress and all these things. And my thyroid test came back normal and I was upset. And I thought like, how fucked, yeah, like how (laughs) fucked up is it that I'm sad that my thyroid is perfectly healthy, that I'm a perfectly healthy person, you know? And, and the crazy thing is that, you know, this was being reflected back to me in all of my reading, in the other health and wellness professionals around me. Like they just kept finding, you know, oh, I found this other article that says this is wrong with you. Oh, this is wrong with you. And so I was going down the rabbit hole with others as well, you know, like, and finally I just sort of got to a breaking point where I was exercising a couple times a day. My diet had gotten increasingly tight to the point where I was like, finding it unenjoyable to cook and like all these things that I love to do. It was just so boring. Um, and I just thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm doing that thing again. You know, like when I was at the height of my, my anxiety around food and exercise, my, my running coach said to me, this was when I was like 21, you know, Jill, there's nothing healthy about being obsessed with health. And that really stuck with me through all the years. And that popped into my brain, you know, there's nothing healthy about this. Like my entire existence is currently directed towards my quote unquote health, which really was at that point, if we're being really honest, completely defined by these 20 pounds that were still on my body, because otherwise by all objective measures, I was fine. Um, But I couldn't see that because my health was being defined by my weight. Um, And so I finally hired a, I, fi- I hired someone to help me figure out what was going on. And, and she was like a body image and emotional eating coach. Cause again, I had myself lumped into all these categories as like an emotional eater and a sugar addict and just all these things. Um, because I was trying to restrict myself so heavily, I had all these, these behaviors were popping up and, you know, within the first session of working with her, she just sort of said like, you're healthy, <laughs> you know, and she, she really like spelled it out pretty clearly. And she's like, the only thing that is off is the fact that you have these 20 pounds on your body. And like, what if that wasn't actually the end of the world? What if you were perfectly fine? What if this is just where your body wants to sit right now? And it was hard. It was totally hard to hear because I was still very much in, you know, my weight and my body was very much defining my worth at that point. Um, and so it was really hard to hear that 
but it was also like, oh my God, freedom. And there was just this deep seed of truth that I couldn't ignore. And so from that point on, um, I became really into health at every size and understanding how we inappropriately link health and weight and all of the behaviors that we begin to exhibit when we start to try to use food as a weapon or a tool against our body in, in unhealthful ways or obsessive ways. And I just developed vocabulary and language for all of those, those struggles that I had as a general naturopath and all of those struggles that I had personally. And, um, it just opened up this whole world for me. And so I slowly started doing more and more of it in my practice until um, a few years ago, I just sort of shut down the general practice to only do this work. Um, and, and this is where I focus. And it's not that I don't believe in the naturopathic side of things or food having an effect on our health because I absolutely do. Um, I just feel like there's lots of people who have that covered and um, there are actually not that many people who are as deep into the understanding of this as I am. And so I'm just going to offer something slightly different, you know, for sure. And you also have the whole context of mm. being an ND for over a decade as well. Right. I feel like this is kind of, it's kind of a magical position because, and I don't mean to, to generalize or to like lump, but you know, it's sort of like the clean eating wellness movement on one corner and then sort of like the body positive, like you don't need to earn your worth through health movement in the opposite corner and i'm not saying that there isn't any bleeding but there can be a little bit of a feeling and i get it like i understand both sides um but i feel like i have this special like my special purpose is to help those who do care about health because not everyone does and not everyone has to but to help those who do care about health um make peace with food and their bodies, you know, and still care about health, but manage that in a non-obsessive way that matches with their life and their values and, you know, how they want to feel, right? Absolutely. And then we also have this whole other little corner, which is the whole functional medicine space, which is w wonderful in so many ways, but also one one of their big tools, their, theirs, ours, whatever you want to say, um, is elimination style diets. Yeah. And that yeah. is just simply not appropriate for everybody. And I like what you said, how you came to this, the work with a slightly different perspective. I think that is one of the gifts of having been through an eating disorder. I suffered for 13 years or more. And so I really look at a lot of my clients under that lens. And so right. I'm the person in the functional medicine trainings raising my hand and saying, sure, keto is great, but what about, you know, what about this subset of, of females, which, hey, is like kind of most of us, right? right? Most of us are carrying some type of disorder into the way that we approach food. So that cannot be overlooked. Um, so I love that. And I think it's, you're exactly right, is not enough people are doing this work. And so you also have to just like find what you're best at and what you're most passionate about and what like gets you out of bed in the morning and just like go with that too. Yeah, absolutely. And this was like, you know, naturopathic medicine. I think that this is true of so many careers, you know, um, it felt good, but it didn't feel like a perfect fit, you know, and I kept trying different things on for size throughout my career. And this was like, I could talk about this all day, every day. I could read about this and I'm, and I'm beyond, you know, I'm not someone who struggles with food or her body or weight. Um, I mean, I'm a human. It's not like every day is perfect, but 
it, I definitely don't, I don't struggle in any real way with any of these things anymore. And yet I could just continue to talk about it. I'm so passionate about it. Um, yeah. And that feels really good. It feels good to, to do something that you could talk about all day. It does. It really does. Yeah. Not everybody has that luxury. So, um, you touched upon a big, important topic that I want to that I want to get into. Um, we have me and my my uh, co-host Kyle. We talked about intuitive eating and health at every size. Fully, you know, with the full disclosure that like we're not. I'm not a Hayes practitioner. I'm, I did not study intuitive eating, so you know, right. this is just our take on it. But it it's kind of like what you said. It's very polarizing. It's either you're in the wellness camp, quote unquote, eating clean, or you're you know, kind of like just completely anti-diet and yeah. that's obviously not the case but I think that's what a lot of people are seeing on social media sometimes like in order to be heard on social media you kind of have to take like a hard stance like yeah. a polarizing stance and I yeah. think that's what people tend to see the most of um I got this this kind of sums it up I got this message after that episode and uh this woman said I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated your recent podcast on intuitive eating and haze when I first dipped my toes into intuitive eating it was more like jumping into the deep end of the pool I thought I'd find support within social media but found myself disenchanted with the almost reversed diet mentality I found in these groups and that seems to be kind of a common experience where people are like whoa, this is like a pendulum swing almost too far in the other direction. And I think that kind of scares people. Um, and it's not, you know, I agree with your running coach that there's nothing healthy about being obsessed with health. And I do think that some people come to the wellness movement seeking out weight loss, even though they're maybe not mm -hmm. quite ready to Often. admit, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. But then there's this whole subset of women who are coming to the wellness world, the alternative health world, naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, because they have been failed by conventional medicine and mm -hmm. conventional nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so some, some people are just truly looking for answers. And I, I feel like sometimes, at least how it's portrayed on social media, sometimes it, it kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. Like yeah. this subset of people are kind of just like thrown out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, you know, I, I've, I've written before about the fact that like, you know, it just like anything to do with health and wellness is totally sort of made fun of sometimes. And I get it. And I get it to a certain extent because the, the, the reality is, um, and just to be clear, I'm always talking about people who are struggling with food, right? Like if there's someone who comes to naturopathic medicine or to functional medicine or to the clean eating movement, and they're generally coming from this like very neutral place and they're just interested in using food to make themselves feel better and they can approach it in a really objective, neutral way and it doesn't affect them negatively and they never feel restricted and they never engage in obsessive or, or reactive patterns with food, cool like that's amazing you know good for you um i'm always speaking to those who are really struggling so whether they have been yo-yoing between clean eating and then binge eating on junk food and they can't figure out why they can't get it right or um can't figure out why the weight won't come off and they're trying to do all of these different things that are leading to a lot of preoccupation or you know there's you know if there's something negative happening that's where I'm that's what I'm talking about does that make sense it does yeah. make sense yeah so can you speak to that a little bit more yes so um with that understanding what I'll say is that what we are working to do with individuals who are struggling is to try to get them back like when you are struggling in that way when you are 
um, unconscious around food or you're reactive around food, um, what's happened is there's this huge emotional component that's been pulled in and also on some levels a biological component if you've been restricting your body and you are for all intents and purposes in kind of like a self-preservation mode like your body is trying to survive it's fearful that you are going to restrict it to death and so it starts engaging in all of these what seem really negative patterns in order to get you and keep you eating because that's all your body really cares about is surviving you know it doesn't count care if you're you know necessarily 20 pounds overweight or if you're eating twizzlers instead of strawberries it's like i just want to keep you alive and so you get into this you know this roller coaster of emotional um angst and fight with food and so when when you see those camps where they are the pendulum seems to have swung really hard. I can see the purpose because what they are doing is trying to combat the $60 million industry that is continually feeding women rules around what they should be doing and where they're failing and how their eating isn't perfect that keeps women on the roller coaster, right? And what I often teach women is that, and I keep saying women, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm being so gendered today. I work with men as well. Men suffer with these issues. Transgendered individuals suffer with these issues. I just mostly work with women. So sorry if I'm, you know, no, leaving anybody out. Same here. I do the same um, thing. So. Yeah. And so what I, what I often teach women is like, what I most want you to be able to do is to make peaceful, easeful decisions with food. And being able to do that means that you are able to say yes and you are able to say no with equal ease to whatever comes up in front of you. But when you are on the roller coaster, for most women, they have been saying no to themselves for a year, a decade, two decades, four decades. You know, they have no ability, it's never been suggested that they could just say yes to certain things. And so they're in this constant struggle of saying no and restriction and depriving. And because they have no ability to say yes, they can't actually say no from a really solid, neutral place which is where the, the fight comes from. And so I can see why um, it would seem as though when the people in that sort of intuitive eating camp are swinging so hard because what they're trying to do is trying to like destigmatize a certain way of eating or type of eating or eating choices that have been highly stigmatized for a very long time in different ways, whether it's been the no fat movement or, you know, the no meat movement or the all meat movement and the high fat movement, you know, it changes every decade. That's the only thing we'll know for sure, right? Is that next decade, it will be something else. And so what they're basically trying to do is say, you can say yes, you can say yes, you can say yes. But the real healed point is somewhere in the middle, right? Where you have the ability to say yes, you have the ability to see Twizzlers and not go into some sort of devolved state um, of judgment and criticism and restriction and negativity so that if you want them, you could say yes, but you could also say no if you don't want them and there's no consequence, right? Okay. And the one other thing I'll say is that like, you know, in its truest, wholest sense, intuitive eating is about being in touch with your body and letting your body lead the way. And so what I find from the wellness side of things, what I often hear is like 
messages like, yeah, but if you're just intuitive eating, how can you be healthy? And I think that that really speaks volumes to, to how little we trust our bodies and ourselves mm-hmm. and how much we over-trust experts and people outside of us to tell us whether or not we're eating well and we're healthy and we're okay, right? Because at its core, if you are intuitive eating and you want to feel a certain way in your body, you can check in with your body regularly to tell you. (laughs) Because I don't know many bodies that feel great eating sugar all day. You know, and you can intuitive eat and you can eat carbohydrates or you can eat sugar or whatever. And then there's a moment where your body starts to go like, okay, I think I've had enough if you're tuned in, right? Yeah. And so that is intuitive eating or eating something like if every time you eat eggs, you start to feel bad, that's intuitive eating. That's your body saying, hey, this food doesn't feel so good right now. The main difference is um, with intuitive eating, we don't have a lot of like moral messages around it. You know, it's not like eggs are bad. Eggs cause inflammation. Eggs will kill you. It's just like eggs feel kind of bad in your body right now. You know, maybe ease off. (laughs) Try again in six months. If they still feel bad, you can stay away from them, you know? And if you do happen to eat them at some point in time because it's just worth it for whatever reason, you know, the only real outcome here is you're going to feel kind of crappy for a bit and then you're going to recover and there's unlimited opportunities to do food again and make different choices, right? It's not like you're morally a bad person if you eat that carbohydrate or you have those cookies in your shopping cart or whatever. Like food is 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 biopsychosocial. It is so much more than just fuel. And so sometimes we make decisions that are ultimately for the best of our physical selves. And sometimes we make choices for our mental emotional selves or our cultural selves or our spiritual selves, right? Yeah, so that's so that what I did. That was a big answer. That's a big. That's what I did uh, this past weekend at a, yeah. um, a concert that had a Grateful Dead cover band. I think I was making um, a, dis- <laughs> a, a, a a soul decision to drink ten tequilas. Yeah, soul, soul. <laughs> that was so, all but, soul. But I wrote a post about it this morning as well because we're coming off of a, a long weekend here in Canada, and I definitely had like more alcohol than I normally would have, and I had more. Um, sugar than I would normally have. And I actually got quite a bit of sleep, but you know, I had maybe more caffeine. I don't know. And I just was feeling a little bleh. Like I just didn't feel totally like myself. Um, I also had less alone time. So, you know, one of the things about intuitive eating is I try to remind people as well that your health involves lots of things, not just food. There was lots of things that led to me feeling a little bleh today that did not just revolve around the food that I put in my body. And so, crazy, right? Amazing. Who knew? And um, and then I just come at it from this place of like, but that's normal because I was attending to a different part of myself on the weekend. You know, like we're human beings and we are in relationship with food in our bodies. And sometimes we need to attend to certain parts of the relationship. You know, which is like like consistency and predictability and the logistics. And sometimes we crave fun and adventure and for things to be different and to be relaxed and to let go. And so I was attending to that side of things this weekend. What's interesting is the more intuitive of an eater I've become, the less far off the rails I ever go because I don't ever feel like, oh, it's all blown, you know, (laughs) nothing matters until Monday. Like I'm always 
in tune with my body. So I'm always like a little bit aware. Um, like but, that you know, last supper mentality. Exactly. It doesn't exist. In. Right. It doesn't exist because there's never a last supper, you know, it, like, but when, when Tuesday rolls around after the long weekend, I'm not like, oh my God, that was such a bad weekend. I blew it. I totally ate so shitty. That was the worst. Instead, I'm just like, oh, I had fun. Now my body's being like, hey, can we get back to the way things normally are? And not just with food, but also like hydration and alone time and attending to self-care in other ways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and getting back on top of my work, which was stressing me out a little bit. And, you know, all of these things. And I just consider that the natural ebb and flow of life, not that was all crappy and this is all better, right? Again, it's all about sort of like taking out that this is right, that's wrong, and kind of just accepting that we're humans and we're complicated and all of these things nourish us and feed us in lots of different ways. And it's equally important. It's all important. So do you think, so I hear a lot in the, the haze and in the intuitive eating camp that no food is addictive, which is like in stark juxtaposition against, um, I would say like the functional food space, which is like food disrupts the neuroregulation of certain foods, like processed food, sugar, blah, 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 disrupts the neuroregulation of your appetite. So we, how mm -hmm. would you kind of um, pull those two things together? Are you kind of oh, suggesting yeah. that if you take the morality out of food, it sort of loses some of that? Oh, yeah. I'm saying it takes a lot out of it. It takes a ton. I'm not going to say 100%. And I will say that Linda Bacon, who founded the Health at Every Size movement, actually has a chapter in the Health at Every Size book about food politics and how... Um, foods do affect us, right? Like um, that processed foods do affect us. You know, she doesn't, she does not actually deny that in any way, shape or form. But what she does, what I do feel like she does impress is that these highly moralized right or wrong on the wagon, off the wagon mentalities that are part of the diet culture that we live in, which the wellness culture is born out of, um, very much exacerbates those feelings right? Like when shame starts to get involved, things get worse. And um, I would say that I think like, I, I am of the camp that I think like, pretty much anything that makes us feel really good could be behaviorally addictive, right? Like whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or food or, you know, we can use things to cope inappropriately. What we do know about humans is that humans don't tend to eat in a way that feels incredibly bad in their body over and over and over again, unless there is a history of restriction. Got so it. that's in the research. Okay. All so, right. th so, so this like, and even so, so eating over and over and over again in a way that makes you feel really bad, um, even if it feels good in the short term, tends to happen in human beings that have a history of restriction and emotional eating as a coping mechanism, which is a normal coping mechanism. So it tends to get 100% demonized in many yeah. of these circles, but it's like all human beings, humans who have never had health issues, humans who've never had weight issues, humans who have never dieted emotionally eat. Like eating is bio, psycho, social. There is an emotional component to it. And anyone who denies that is missing a huge piece of the human 
experience. Like it's designed to feel good on a certain level in the same way that sex is because it's part of our survival. Pleasure is built into the eating experience for a reason and it's important and it's important to absorption. It's important to a lot of things actually. It's important to regulating our appetites. It's, it's pleasure is incredibly important when it comes to food. Um, but we see it become an inappropriate coping mechanism. And what I mean by that is an overriding, overarching, compulsive coping mechanism. Again, most often, I don't want to say always because it's never always, but most often when there is a history of restriction. So when we take the restriction out and we start to normalize the relationship with food, I'm not going to say 100% of the time the compulsive behaviors around these foods will go away, but I will say that everyone that I have ever worked with is able to have a healthful, normal relationship with these foods. Okay, so that kind of leads into a question that um, somebody wrote in about, and it's all about overeating, which, uh, you know, I was telling you earlier, we don't really discuss that much on this show because I just tend to see so much undereating. Mm-hmm. Um, but she really wanted us to approach this topic. And I always felt, I basically, my own experience echoes exactly what you're saying. I was bulimic for eight years and... God knows what for like more years than that. Um, but the, the, I always found that the overeating, that compulsion came from one or two, uh, one of two places. The first one was restriction because, mm-hmm. um, I feel like, you know, so a lot of women will say, I overeat at night. I, I binge yeah. at night. And yeah. I'm like, are you binging at night? Or are you just, or are you just getting in yourself? the calories? Yeah. Like, are you just getting in the calories that you didn't allow yourself to eat all day? Right. <laughs> and exactly. you can like no longer, like you could sort of overpower your biology for a certain amount of time, but now you can't. Like, right. exactly. Like if you're eating a thousand calories during the day, of course, you're going to be ravenous at night. That's yeah. normal. That's a yeah. normal response. Yeah. Um, but definitely it kind of was like the monkey swing to, to restriction. I would eat perfectly all day. And then come night, I was like, oh my God, I have to, I'm starving. Um, and the other thing was really more around managing emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it's a coping mechanism. It, mm-hmm. it was self-soothing. It was the dopamine hit. Um, it was what I did to feel good because I didn't know what else to do to feel good. And I think we beat ourselves up so much for emotional eating. You're right. We demonize it. And I think what we really need to take a look at, and I would encourage everybody to do this, is to stop for a moment and realize how amazing it is that we care enough about ourselves that we're willing to do something to soothe ourselves during a hard time, Mm -hmm. even if it's Mm -hmm. most, even if it's not necessarily like serving us in the best way long term, it's Mm -hmm. something that we're doing to like take care of ourselves. And I think that's kind of a special thing. Um, So, but that would be the two things that I see. It's like emotions, like using food as a way to deal with your emotions because maybe you don't have enough tools in your toolbox um, to do otherwise. And then restricting, like the monkey swing, you know, it's like the pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. And then the third one I would say is I see people, um, the third sort of group of people that I see that find themselves overeating or, or... it's just they've, they've gone completely unconscious, like they're just too exhausted or too rebellious to the whole situation to even care, you know? Okay. And so they will find themselves in that camp sometimes. But I totally agree. And one of the things that I, I do really early on in the work that I do with women is define binge eating, define emotional eating, <laughs> um, because it's important to understand the differences and also understand what's normal because diet culture is so heavily warped normal behaviors and turn them into things that we should be trying to control and manipulate. And so the first thing is 
If you're overeating, the first thing I ask women is, are you actually overeating? Because our understanding of how many calories we need a day tends to be highly warped. And there's a very poor understanding of um, biodiversity and the fact that um, you know, and, and I learned so much from learning about children, right? So when they studied children who are in a normal BMI range and they studied their caloric intake, you know, at any given age from like one to two or the two to three year olds or four to five year olds on any given day, you could see swings from like some kids ate 500 calories and some kids ate like 2000 calories or 3000 calories in, in, on any given day. Like this is it's, it's really normal to have wild swings in calories from human to human and even from day to day in the same human. Like we're not robots and we don't have the same energy requirements every day. We actually have incredibly varied caloric needs. Um, and so the first thing is, are you believing that you should be existing on X number of calories a day when your body actually needs a certain number that's much bigger? The second thing is, can you feel? Would you feel comfortable throwing out some numbers? Just because I think people need to hear this. I do this often. I'll use myself as an example. I'm 145. I'm 5'7, so 145 pounds, 5'7. Um, I'm pretty active. Uh, I use my brain a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that burns up a lot yeah. of calories. Yeah. Um, and my maintenance. This is my maintenance. Uh, is like you know, somewhere between 24 to 2,600 calories. Yeah. And I would say I'm 5'4 and I'm heavy. I'm, I, I, how, how much did you say you weighed? I don't. 145, I think. Yeah. So I, I, weigh, I weigh more than you. Um, I've always been super heavy though, like super heavy. And I don't know exactly what I weigh right now because I don't weigh myself, but I definitely eat in that range easily as well. Now there are other days where I eat a lot less. Depends sure. on the day. Like I right. can get obsessed, especially now that I've really um, normalized my relationship with food, I can really easily fluctuate. But I would say that I don't exist very happily at a low number of calories for very long at all. I never have. And my weight's very stable. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not going up. I'm not going down. It's been very stable and has been for about four years, right? Or five years. So, um, so but I, I will say, I will say there is, um, Refinery29 did a really good summary of the Minnesota starvation study. Did you, have you ever seen that? No. Okay, so it's super interesting. It would be considered completely unethical right now, but it was done after World War II, where a group of men volunteered to basically be starved out for an experiment. Oh, I know exactly what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, yes. So what's most, what's most interesting is not only all of the negative behaviors and obsessive behaviors and addictive-like behaviors that these individuals developed throughout the starvation experiment and the fact that those behaviors lasted for sometimes years after they stopped being starved, um, but that they were on 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day. So that was considered starvation, right? And this is often what diets are recommending to women. And I get that they were men, but some of them weren't bigger than women, you know? And, um, you know, and sometimes it's even lower. I've seen, you know, goop and stuff. They're recommending like 800 calories. I mean, it's just, Come it's, on. it's really, you, you cannot nutritionally adequately um, feed yourself at that. It's, it's starvation for children. You know, it's not just starvation for adults. It's starvation for all humans. So um, I would say... So the first thing is, are you even eating enough in general? The second thing, like you said, is are you trying to eat in some perfect way throughout the day that is not actually meeting your requirements? So when you get a home at the end of the day, um, your appetite is in full-blown mode 
and it's trying to compensate or make up or gather all of the lost nutrients and calories that it didn't get through the day. And no, not only that, but it's in overdrive. So, you know, one of the fundamental principles of the work I do is that before you can even begin to attend to overeating or fullness, you need to be attending to hunger consistently. You need to be nourishing yourself consistently before you can have the ability to stop when you're full. Oh because, my God. Isn't that huge? Because if your body, if that biological animal part of you is fearful that food is not going to be consistent or secure, it will not stop when food is present. So if there is an ongoing fear, and this grows, the longer we restrict ourselves, the more we diet ourselves, the more we do this to ourselves, this, this thing, this feeling grows and we can't willpower it away because it's too strong because it's a survival mechanism it it this drive grows and grows and grows and um i've heard people describe it as like you know it's like trying to hold your breath for a long period of time and you end up gasping for air or like trying to hold your pee and then you like pee your pants <laughs> like you can only hang on for so long before you're like gasping and that is what some people will call overeating or it can be defined as binge eating but it's a very normal reaction <laughs> to trying to starve yourself which is what a lot of these restriction diets are doing to your to your biological animalistic body that's what it feels like right right and i'm so glad that you said that thing about the specific calories i've i've been mm. saying for a while like 1500 calories is a starvation diet you need yep. more Yep. You need more. Yep. I, I Most people, and there might be some people, like I have a couple of friends, I can think of two people in my life that maybe exist on that many calories a day naturally, naturally, and always have, and always will. Or maybe, you know, 1,500, but some days they have 2,000 or, you know, whatever, I don't know. But they definitely have smaller appetites and have always existed there. But there is a very big difference between someone who naturally exists there and trying to force yourself to exist there. And when you try to force your body to exist with fewer carbohydrates than your body needs or fewer calories than your body needs or more fat than your body likes, like, you know, all of these diets have research behind them and all of these diets work for incredibly small groups of people. None of them fit perfectly for all people, right? And so part of intuitive eating is about being able to gather the information and then see what fits with you and see what doesn't. But a big part of the diet and wellness industry is ignoring all of the negative side effects that you're feeling and experiencing and just chalking it up to like, I need to get better at this versus, hey, maybe this doesn't actually feel totally great to me, you know? Oh my God, yeah, I do, I do now. Um, okay, so that's all huge and very helpful. Um, I wanna circle back around to something you said in the beginning that when you were working with um, a coach around emotional eating and she was like, well, maybe your body just really likes these 20 pounds, yeah. you know? And you yeah. said it was really hard to hear. It eventually felt like freedom, but it was hard to hear. That's, I think, the place that a lot of folks might be in, especially if they've been listening to my podcast and other things like it for a long time, they're starting to be like, okay, like I can start to wrap my head around the fact that I should be eating more or I'm, you know, I got to take care of myself in a different way that I have been, but it's so hard. What do you say to that? I say, well, you know, 
shameless plug for myself is I feel like a lot of people need help working through it because it's a challenging thing. Like the diet culture and the thin is best body has been indoctrinated into us since birth. That is very much a part of the culture that we live in. And so being able to work yourself out of that and understanding that it isn't just superficial, that you have been taught on some level that all of your access to health and wealth and happiness and success and joy and love and belonging has on some level been tied to your body. And that it's not just frivolous or superficial or petty to be worried about these things. It's, it's bred into us in a really deep way. So I'll say for many people, it's, it's for myself included, <laughs> I had to work with someone to even just get me started. And then I, you know, it didn't take me very long, maybe because of the history and because of where I sit on the fence, you know, one or two sessions. And I was like off to the races because for me, it actually felt like simultaneous grief and joy in one moment, you know, like, oh my God, I'm not entirely responsible for this, in charge of this and supposed to control this. That's terrifying and also totally freeing. It was both of those things simultaneously. And for me, it was about um, understanding that what I, for me, what I tell women is it's about understanding what you want most. That's the decision you have to make. It's gonna be hard either way. You're either, you're, you know, you're either gonna stay preoccupied with food all the day long, thinking about food, obsessing about food, stressing about food, anxious about food, and your body, and how it looks, and weight, that's not easy, like make no bones about it, <laughs> that is not an easy place to exist in, or you're going to do the challenging work of learning how to normalize your relationship with food, and make peace with your body wherever it lands, as you learn to feed yourself in a way that allows you to stop obsessing about food. They're both challenging. The big difference is the work that I do with women gets easier and easier and easier. Obsessing about food, stressing about food, being anxious about your body and food and your worth as it relates to your weight never gets easier, right? And so that's my big selling point. And so for me, what it came down to is what I, mo what I wanted most was peace and freedom to live my life. I did not want to die or to have children because this was a decision I made, even though I really did the deepest aspects of the work after my second daughter was born, I made the decision before I had children that I did not want to be passing this on to my kids. And I wanted to be able to live a good and well-rounded and flexible, fun life that included caring about food, but was not dependent upon or revolving around what I ate. And so, um, you know, the mantra that got me through was like, anything that cost me my peace is too expensive. And so that is what I focused on as I worked through it. Was it easy? No, it took time. It took work. It took lots of mental shifting. Um, but as soon as I started to get a taste of the freedom on deeper levels, it was like, oh, this is it. This is how I want to live my life. And I can be healthy. I can be absolutely healthy and I can have fun and I can be free of this craziness, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers the question because it's a little different for each person. You know, part of the work that I do is digging into how the diet and wellness story that is currently being told has been internalized by each person that I work with because sure. it's, it's, you know, totally unique and totally ununique all at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it's no totally. terribly unoriginal and yet it shows up in slightly different ways for each person. Yes, and so that's there a good isn't, way to put it. Yeah, and so there's not a single solution. It's very much about 
um, just digging into that story. It, it really, what it really comes down to is worth and judgment and um, our need for control in a world that's becoming increasingly challenging and difficult and um, how you can develop new coping mechanisms as you stop using food and weight to try to control all of the universe, you know? And I love the amount. That's huge. It's massive. I I also love the mantra that you threw out there. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people just in and of itself. Um, And And sometimes the mantra that I give to women at the beginning of the work is like, I don't know what I'm doing right now, <laughs> but I know that what I have been doing hasn't been working. So I'm just going to keep taking baby steps forward. You know, like <laughs> this is hard. It feels weird. It feels uncomfortable, but what I've been doing hasn't been working. So sometimes that helps as well. Exactly. And if you do what you always did, you get what you always got. So if right. you're looking for change, something has to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So the children thing is big. This is a big, 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 big one. Um, and I get this question a lot. So how do we, how do we approach this without totally effing up our kids? <laughs> like <laughs> how do we have our children embrace healthy eating without making them totally mental about this? Because I think a lot of us are conscientious about not wanting to pass our crap down to our kids. Um, I, on another episode, I went on this kind of like tirade about stop blaming the moms because listen, the moms are baked in this same diet shitstorm casserole that we all are. So we have to cut mom some slack. I mean, I had a raging eating disorder and my mom never talked about diet. So it wasn't my mom's fault you know what I'm saying oh yeah and I'm and I always say that too I'm always like I'm a mom lover you know like same thing moms were raised in diet culture they have the same they've been given the same tools that that everybody else has to help and not help on the same level and I see you know half the people that I see had moms who were really disordered and crazy around food and weight and the other half had like you said moms who never talked about it at all and seem to have a really normal relationship with food. Like this is the, it's the culture we live in. Exactly. You can absorb it. You know, I definitely think that as parents, we can begin to influence and affect the way that our children see food in their bodies. But um, I don't think that we could ever say that parents are absolutely responsible. You know, that would be, I mean, I don't want that pressure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just doing the best we can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what, so the, the one thing, okay, so the the foundation of... Um, the division of responsibility, which is what I teach parents when it comes to food and children, um, you know, the foundation of it is essentially that we're raising competent eaters, which means that we are raising eaters that can manage themselves around all of the many foods that exist in our world today. <laughs> so we are not trying to raise perfect eaters. We're trying to raise competent eaters who are in touch with their bodies, who are able to listen to the messaging of their body, who are able to be around Um, healthy foods and sugary foods and processed foods and whole foods and manage themselves and take in foods that for the most part make their bodies feel good. Um, And the research has shown like 40 to 50 years worth of research has shown that these individuals tend to have more stable weights. They tend to have better health markers across the board from blood pressure to blood lipids to blood sugar. Um, And they also have a better um, feeling about their body. They have a better sense of themselves and their bodies. But it's important to note that that doesn't mean that their bodies fall into the current BMI ranges that exist as they're set up today or idealized today. So there's a wider range. So there's, you know, instead of being like, you need to be 19 to 24 on the BMI scale, and really it's idealized that you're even lower than that. Competent eaters tend to fall on a scale of like 20 to 31 on the BMI scale. So there's a much 
wider range of biodiversity. And the other thing is that there, there's no perfection in the eating. It's very flexible. It's very fluid. Um, and so when it comes to teaching kids to eat, we're not trying to turn them into mini robots. We're trying to turn them into um, individuals who are very much in tune with themselves and what their bodies want and need and who are able to attend to those needs regularly if that makes sense. So it does make sense. Yeah. And so uh, the division of responsibility basically teaches parents, what's your responsibility and what's your kid's responsibility when it comes to feeding. And it, it, it operates on the premise that children need their whole childhoods to learn how to eat like the adults around them. And so just like with really challenging intellectual concepts or emotional concepts, we don't expect that four and five and eight and 10 year olds can manage really challenging emotional situations. We also don't expect that they can challenge really, or that they can manage really complex or challenging nutritional information. And, and for me, what I see is that we have a culture where it's like, oh, we know more and more and more about food and we feel like our children need to know more and more and more about it. And we've got to get it into them and we have to teach them what's a good food and a bad food. And, um, that's our responsibility. And we're almost like shoving it down their throats. And what I see are children who end up being very nervous or fearful around food. So they become very, very picky and resistant to eating, or they become quite preoccupied with food because there's this weird emotional roller coaster being set up for them where it's like, that's shameful. That's bad. We limit that. We don't eat that. And they become preoccupied with it. And so the goal is again, just like with adults to bring children back to this place of curiosity and compassion and seeing food from a, a neutral place where it's like, do I want this? I can say yes or no equally. And if I occasionally overdo something or eat something that eventually feels bad in my body, I just chalk it up to a learning experience and I move on, you know? Um, and so, like I said, or, or what I was trying to get at is that I feel like we're in this world where it's like we believe children should be much more advanced with their eating before they are developmentally capable of being advanced. And so... Uh, that's where the issues are stemming from and what we really need to do is just allow children to be children and allow them to experiment and know that from like six weeks on babies are very good at regulating how many calories they need every day and they are very good at um, managing food if they are consistently presented with relatively not perfectly but relatively healthy food on a consistent basis right and so um, within the division of responsibility, parents are always in charge of grocery shopping and picking out the foods that come into the home and are cooked and prepared and put on the table. Is that um, the nutritional gatekeeper? Uh, uh, that's not what she calls it. She just okay. calls it um, the I'm division of response. That's she just calls it the division of responsibility. Got so it. it's like you're the mom. So you're in charge of like setting regular snack and meal times and and sticking with it. So you're regularly like reliably feeding your children and putting food that you enjoy that's relatively healthy on the table over and over and over again. And then kids are in charge of if they eat and how much. And so we put food out on the table all the time. And, you know, our kids may not take the sweet potatoes 17 times. <laughs> but the 18th time they do, you know. But it's about not trying to force or coerce or pressure children into eating and allowing them to what Ellen calls sneak up on food 
uh, at their own pace. And some kids will do it really easily and some kids will take years to sneak up on certain foods. Um, and we just have to keep presenting it and offering it to them and also providing them with the opportunity to manage those trickier foods like sugary foods and processed foods so that they learn how to manage those things as well in a neutral way, right? And so it's just about coming to the table, understanding that a really big part of family dinners is about bonding and coming together and relationship building. And a piece of it is about nutrition, but we can actually teach a whole lot about nutrition by just modeling, you know, just showing your kids what healthy eating is to you. They will pick up on it and they will eventually eat the way you do. Um, when food is, I mean, it's, it's, it's more than this, you know, I'm trying to wrap it up in a, in a tight little bow, but basically when you regularly present foods that are healthy and you eat those foods and it's enjoyable and you model, you know, managing ice cream cones and movie treats and all of those things, when you model those things and you give children the structure and the opportunity to play and experiment and be curious and learn, they will eventually eat like you do. That's kind of what I heard too, like more anecdotally though, like from adults whose parents were quote unquote healthy eaters, like they yeah. went off, they did their own thing, yeah. but they always circled back around. And now as adults, they kind of eat exactly like their parents yeah. ate. Which yeah, is so because that's cool. part of growing up, right? Yeah. Like it's part of growing up to rebel a little and to do the right thing and to get curious and to overdo some things or what, like that's part of learning. And it's part of learning in all areas of life you know, why would it be any different with food? And you know, what we know about continually pressuring children or trying to force them to do things is it tends to set up bad patterns, right? Like, or, or, or completely pretending that certain things don't exist in the world, you know, and just cut, like never approaching them or discussing them. We know that that can lead to all kinds of problems with children. And it's the same with food, right? Like sugary foods exist, pop exists, chips exist. Like, if you want a child to be able to eat healthy and then include those foods in moderate, relaxed ways, you need to, to, to present them and allow them to eat those foods in moderate, relaxed ways, you know? Um, the, the issue is that early on, um, what parents might define as moderate might not be what they see their children doing. Wait, what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, kids may experiment and eat more chips than a parent might decide is Got appropriate. It. Okay. Because they will have, again, when it comes to like how much is too much or, you know, what's normal, um, it, it tends to be pretty warped for a lot of people. Like what's, what's a normal behavior and not a normal behavior. And so, you know, one of the best things we can do when it comes to food and bodies and weight and health for our children is to actually just normalize that relationship for ourselves so that <laughs> we can then go into the relationship with food and our children in a more neutral, positive, flexible way. Well, that did just tie everything up with a nice little bow, I think. <laughs> um, all right. This was all super, super helpful and informative. Um, I'm sure people are going to want to know where they can find more of you. So can you tell us a little bit more? Do you work virtually with people? I do. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So I have, I work with people three ways. I do, um, one-on-one -on -one coaching packages for people who are like, I've got some work to do and I want to just like make the time and energy and financial commitment. And it provides, you know, support and accountability and lots of, you know, I have four month and six month and 12 month programs. I also do single sessions. So how to eat and how to feed sessions, how to eat is for adults, how to feed is for children, but I work with the adults, not the kids. 
um, and I do those sessions virtually. And then I have a self-study program where you can like work your way through it at your own pace on your own time. And I also have a podcast and all of it is under food, like the food freedom body love method. So if you Google, um, or, or if you search I'll www. Link to all of it yeah, in show notes. Yeah, yeah. www.foodfreedombodylove.com. You'll find all the ways to work with me and ways to, and if you Google it, you'll find the podcast. And yeah, if you link to it, that's, that's perfect. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was, I'm glad we connected. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you 